Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is a live recording of a multiracial group of activists and musicians here in Denver, Colorado, who come together occasionally for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use um, this song. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, back with you again today. I'm a UCC pastor in the place currently called Denver, Colorado, here on Cheyenne and Arapaho land, and the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of SURGE Faith and SURGE Action, and is particularly designed for white people, white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. Well, there's a lot of winter happening all over the Northern Hemisphere right now. We are having our third snow today, here in less than a week, and I'm grateful, actually. I've learned living out west to give thanks for moisture in whatever form it comes, and we have needed so much moisture here on the Front Range. Moisture and cold. Although the southerner in me is always stressed out about driving in the snow, I do appreciate what snow asks of us, reminds us, during the winter to slow down, to rest, to take it easy, to get cozy and snuggled up with beloveds, both animal and human, to dream. It is still winter, after all, when the seeds are nestled underground in the dark, gathering their energy for the coming spring, dreaming about what they might become. Even though the new year may make us feel like we have to start off with the bang and do all the things all at once, The earth, the snow, reminds us, loves its still winter. Slow down. Take it easy. Feel out what's happening underground. Rest. Dream. texts I'm working with today is the reading from Nehemiah. I'm not sure I've ever heard a sermon on Nehemiah, have you? Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of stuck in the middle, lost between Exodus and David's stories and then the good stuff of the Psalms and the prophets. 
So I'm going to read it for us in case it's not familiar. This is from Nehemiah chapter 8 in the NRSV with a few translation changes by me. When the seventh month came, the people of Israel being settled in their towns, all the people gathered together in the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the Torah of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the Torah before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read it from facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the Torah. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read from the book, from the Torah of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the Torah. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I find this story, which is a critical moment in Israel's history, to be incredibly poignant. To understand why this is so, we need to remember some history. In 586 BCE, the Babylonian Empire conquered Israel, carrying off many of their leaders and their families into exile in Babylon and leaving Jerusalem in ruins. Second Kings, Second Chronicles, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, some of the minor prophets, and the later chapters of Isaiah are some of the other texts in the Bible describing the conquest, exile, and destruction of Jerusalem, as well as the exile's return. Israelites were in exile in Babylon for around 50 years when King Cyrus of Syria took control and allowed the Israelites to return. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe the time when the exiled Israelites get to return back to their land, return back to their holy places. They describe what they find and how they begin to rebuild, both rebuilding the literal structures of Jerusalem as well as rebuilding their community and what it means to be community after conquest and exile. This moment in chapter 8 of Nehemiah is the culmination of that rebuilding, both of structures and community. This culmination is an act of ritual, of worship. Imagine what it must have been like watching your holy place be destroyed and being deported into exile, far from the land you call home, to be gone for a lifetime, long enough that elders would have died, 
and children would have been born who never knew their family's home. Imagine getting to return home at last, only to find your holy place still in ruins, overgrown and unkempt. Your children find nothing familiar, and perhaps you don't either. And yet, you commit to rebuild. The temple, the walkways, the walls, the wells, the gates, the community. And now here you are, all the people, your city and your community rebuilt. You're settled again in the land and your towns and you gather all the people. You gather in the old city, David's city, and you ask for the Torah, your sacred story to be read. And you weep. And you're not sure if they're tears of grief or of joy. And really, isn't it both? And the leaders remind you to celebrate, for this is a holy day, a sacred day. I find this scene to be so moving. A people who have experienced such oppression actually getting to experience and celebrate restoration. I was struck when I first heard this story about the emphasis on all the people. I actually wrote a paper on this in seminary about how I was so used to the NRSV making masculine gender language more inclusive that at first it didn't register how very clear this story is. It really does say in Hebrew, all the people, men and women and those with understanding, which means children. Did you notice how this is said over and over? All the people, men and women and those with understanding. All the people. All the people. At the time, I wrote about how this strong, clear statement and its repetition tells us that contrary to anti-Jewish ideas many Christians hold about how anti-woman Judaism supposedly was, women are clearly included in the ritual and celebratory life of Israel. That the Torah was also meant for women that women understood and longed for and wept over the Torah. This moment was for everyone, all the people. I feel like I should tell you I made an A on that paper, and I'm still really proud of that. I feel like I should tell you my point at the time is still an important one. And also, I'm about to complicate things for us. I know, can't we just have this beautiful moment, all the people, celebration, restoration, can't we just have this for once? Well, the thing is, it's not actually all the people. There are a few things to hold on to here. First, it becomes clear both across the narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as in some of the other biblical texts about the exile's return, that not everyone was exiled. Those exiled were the elite, the royal families and the wealthy. But the poor folks, the people of the land, were left behind. Some of those people of the land offered to help with the rebuild 
we learn in Ezra 4, but they were rejected. Who is all the people? Who is this rebuilding for? Secondly, there's a deep concern in Ezra and Nehemiah about foreigners, especially men who had married foreign women and the children they had together. I can understand why. If my people had been repeatedly trampled over by foreign empires, repeatedly hauled off to exile, repeatedly experienced the destruction of their holy places and communities by foreign empires, I mean, I would be concerned about foreigners too, wouldn't you? The solution to this perceived problem comes through a communal democratic process and by consulting Torah. The solution is this to oppose mixed marriages and to send away the foreign women and the children of those marriages. I think we can both hold an empathy for the anxiety of a people oppressed by foreigners and also question the solution they come to, casting those foreign women, including their children, out of the community. Who is all the people? Who is this rebuilding for? Now, there are other biblical voices speaking back to how Ezra and Nehemiah tells this story, that the people of the land are bad and that foreigners should be cast out. Many scholars think the book of Ruth, in which the title heroine is a foreigner, is speaking to an alternative vision of community and as a critique to the decision to expel foreign women and children. The prophets of this stretch of time are also critiquing how the problem of foreigners is being solved, offering alternative visions of a community in which foreigners are included and are even welcome to worship the divine alongside Israelites. In fact, the very same chapter of Isaiah that Jesus is quoting in this week's gospel reading, Isaiah 61, is one of those visions. In Isaiah 61.5, we hear this, Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines. So there was not actually consensus in Israel about whether or not foreigners should be welcome. Who is all the people? Who is this rebuilding for? The prophets seem also to be wrestling with those questions. Their critiques and visions, including again the words of Isaiah quoted by Jesus in Luke 4, point to a reality that was much messier than the Ezra-Nehemiah narrative seems to be describing. That narrative does describe opposition, but doesn't uh, critique how the rebuilders, who we remember were the elite and wealthy, are actually going about their rebuilding. The later chapters of Isaiah give us more than clues that the elite are rebuilding in a way that continues to center their own power and wealth. They're rebuilding oppression. Isaiah 58, for example, reminds them that rebuilding and restoration comes through justice and liberation, not through serving their own interests. Isaiah 61, Jesus' quote, is a similar reminder focusing on liberation from oppression as the path towards rebuilding. The divine has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners. These 
prophetic visions in later Isaiah are clearly of a divine who longs for all the people to be restored, for all the people to be free. In the prophetic visions, all the people means all the people. The rebuilding is for everyone. I have so much curiosity about how Jesus' quoting of Isaiah 61 to declare his ministry in Luke 4 has gotten paired up with Nehemiah 8 in the lectionary. I'm never quite sure what the lectionary editors are thinking, but this is what the pairing has me thinking in light of the dynamics surrounding Nehemiah 8 that I just talked about. Just to refresh us in this bit of Luke 4, Jesus returns to his hometown synagogue stands up and reads the excerpt from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he sits down and says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay then. Well... I'm thinking about how the Gospel of Luke was written after the Roman Empire had totally destroyed Jerusalem and had either slaughtered or carried off the Jews living in the land, not just into exile, but enslavement. Even though the story of Luke takes place a generation or more earlier, the writing of that story took place in the context of the aftermath of conquest. I'm wondering about the Jewish folks who were left, the Jewish folks in diaspora, the Gentile folks who wanted to follow the one God instead of the Roman Empire. I'm wondering about them gathered up together in the aftermath of that trauma, saying to themselves and each other, what do we do now? How do we ever rebuild from this? And here is this voice of Jesus channeling the prophets, reminding everyone of what values and commitments need to be centered in that rebuilding. That all the people means all the people. That the rebuilding is for everyone. think these stories are telling us is that our imaginations can be limited. We imagine enough freedom for just us for now, but it's limited, especially when there are huge violent imperial forces at work contesting our imaginations. Can't it be enough to imagine safety and restoration just for me and mine? The prophets don't think so. Maybe Jesus, rooted in his tradition, doesn't think so. I'm reminded of the conversation I was privileged to hear several years ago between Dr. Vincent Harding and Dr. Angela Davis. So much movement wisdom. But one of the things they both talked about was the idea that how we, how we understand 
how we imagine freedom in any moment is limited. In my notes, I have Dr. Davis saying about the civil rights area, era, what we thought was freedom was a narrow understanding of what it means to be free. Freedom itself is an infinite process. Dr. Harding picked up from there, talking about how each generation gets to expand on the idea of what freedom is. That each iteration of the freedom movement, which is what he insisted on calling the movement in this country, each iteration of the freedom movement gets to explore and expand what it means to be human, what it means to be free. We keep learning and growing. So my point in complicating the story of the elite rebuilders of ancient Jerusalem is not con to condemn them for not getting it right or dispose of their story. It's to say they understood something important about freedom. And also, there was yet more to understand. We these days aren't any different. We understand something about freedom and also there is yet more to understand. And we struggle with the same questions. Who is all the people? Who is this rebuilding for? We are building up a new world, sings Dr. Harding. It's a declaration of action and it's also an invitation to keep stretching our imagination, keep stretching our imagination, keep stretching our imagination because all the people means all the people the rebuilding is for everyone Brown says that we are in an imagination battle. I often feel, she says, I am trapped inside someone else's imagination and I must engage my own imagination in order to break free. All of this imagining, she goes on, in the poverty of our current system is heightened because of scarcity economics. There isn't enough, so we need to hoard, enclose, divide, fence up, and prioritize resources and people. We have to imagine beyond those fears, Brown says. We have to imagine and conceive together. You know I can't go to podcasts without quoting Adrienne Marie Brown. Well, this battle for the imagination is true for white folks too. White supremacy and capitalism want us as white people to believe certain things about the world, about what it means to be safe, what it means to have worth, what it means to be free, what it means to be human. So here's my action for you this week. It's to practice stretching our imagination. Let's practice stretching our imagination about this border wall the administration once built. So badly the shutdown, or as some are calling it, the quiet coup, is now into its second month. I'm guessing if you've made it this far into the podcast, you probably think the border wall is a bad idea. I mean, I certainly do. But when we defeat the border wall, what then? What will we 
rebuild in the aftermath? And what about borders themselves? What's the battle in our imagination that is happening when I raise those questions? What messages as white people have been embedded in us about safety, about sovereignty? In defeating the border wall, we understand something about freedom. And is there more to understand? Let's stretch our imaginations right here. Can we imagine a world without borders? Remembering the prophets who declare that we build up a new world by centering justice and liberation and wholeness, what happens when we imagine a world without borders? So practice stretching your imagination this week. Along with that, I'm also including a link in the transcript with ways to take action around the shutdown and support folks who are impacted. Thanks as always for joining me from wherever you are on this good earth. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. Next week, Will Green will be back with a resistance word for us. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. And transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks as always to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Max, I'm so grateful to you always. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Keep stretching your imagination. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Dan Dunlake.